Heavenly Father, we are celebrating, Father, your grace and mercy every day of our lives. We just don't always remember to say it. And Lord, you've been so gracious to this small body of believers. You have brought us together. Uh, You have raised up men and women to lead us. You have given us a beautiful place to meet. You've given us friends in many places that support and encourage us. And Father, we just, at every turn of this endeavor, every time we've turned around, Father, it seems like you're ahead of us because uh, you are. And you have been providing for us in ways we never could have imagined. And uh, Father, it just reminds me, as Paul said, that you can do so much more abundantly than we could ever even think about or imagine. And what a shame it is, Father, how often we ask you to show yourself strong before we take our steps of faith. How often we doubt that you can do the things we know you can do. And thankfully, Father, you have shown us the the grace and mercy to, to give us a clear path ahead that's let us do what you've called us to do. And we thank you for that, Father. And as we learn in the text today, studying what your son has told us about these very things, about building the kingdom, how ironic it would be, Father, if we would read and study these things, forgetting that it is you who does the work. And we thank you for the work you're doing and have done. And we look forward, Father, to where that work is taking us. Make us equal to the challenges that you are going to bring us. Not in our own power, Father, but we know that and you know that. But just make us equal, Father. Give us the stamina, the wisdom, the courage, the faith to take on what you want to give us to do. And, Father, we pledge we'll do it. Because we love you as you've loved us before we knew you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 10, my friends. Last week, in the beginning of this chapter, we were introduced to the new leaders of the New Testament church. Or so they will be, though none of them had a clue. That's what was coming. Remember, we studied last week that Jesus knew he was going to be rejected by Israel and that he would leave earth for a time. And as a result, what he's doing now in chapter 10 and 11 and into 12 is preparing these men for that coming change in his earthly ministry where he calls and commissions these 12 men to serve him in the leading of a church, an institution which, at least at this point, doesn't even exist yet. This is all preparatory work. As we saw last week, these 12 men that he calls apostles, 11 in the end, uh, one to be added later, and others to follow. He's gifting them in unique ways, spiritual powers and authority and insight that are not common in the church, certainly. And these guys that Christ chose for this position were thoroughly unqualified to have the role. None of them had ever received any formal theological training. None of them even sought for this position. And I assure you, none of them had a clue what was coming. And yet here they are. In spite of all of that, in spite of their lack of qualifications, or maybe because of their lack of qualifications, Jesus has now called them to serve him in this new endeavor. And through their weakness, as you know, Paul says, they will show God to be strong in what he will do through them. In the end, these men will be equal to the challenge God gives them because, and this is one of my favorite adages that I share with people all the time, those who God calls, God equips. He will never call someone into ministry and then fall short of the equipping necessary to bring you to the end of what he has planned. And these men, they're going to receive training, they're going to receive instruction, That's during the years with Jesus and even afterward. And they're going to get special spiritual gifts, which we talked about a little bit last week, which will validate their ministry. 
And as a result, they'll occupy this really unique role in church history. But friends, as we move forward now looking at how Jesus begins that preparation, I don't want you to stay detached from what you're seeing in the lives of these 12 men. Because you and I share a mission of the same sort. We don't have their specific gifting. We don't have their specific role. That doesn't mean we don't share a lot of the same mission. We do. And these 12 men were unqualified and untrained. Well, can't you see yourself in that a little bit? And likewise, they didn't know what was coming. Do you? You know, there's a lot of similarity here between what they experienced and what we did. Just differences in application. Differences in mission in very subtle ways. But in the big picture, I think we can say we're them and they're us. And therefore, we can also say we're being equipped. We can also say that we have to have gifts of some sort in order to accomplish the work He's given us. And I assure you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift, whether you know it or not. And we too need training in the Word of God. We too need to have leadership in the church, and on and on and on. Just because you're not an apostle, just because you don't possess apostolic power, doesn't mean you don't have some power, doesn't mean you don't have some authority. And that's what we're going to learn as we move into the text now. We're going to learn how Jesus put these men in a training program in preparation for their mission and how that might apply to us as well. So tonight, let's return to studying how Jesus prepares these apostles to assume their responsibility in the church. And as we do, let's all recognize, and maybe this is a bit of irony, even as we study their preparation, we are being prepared. This is our instruction for our own mission. So keep that in mind. Let's not just sort of see this academically. Let's understand this is a study not of how they got prepared. This is a study of how God's preparing you as you learn how they got prepared. All right, now the next passage is probably one of the most important in the New Testament on this topic of preparing to serve Christ. It's particularly important. In fact, it's so important that in the way I'm going to address it tonight, I'm going to read a larger section. I'm going to read the whole of it so you hear the whole of it at once. Clearly, in the time we have, I won't address it all tonight. That's fine. We've got weeks ahead. We get nothing but time. So we're just going to keep going. Uh, but tonight we're going to do the first part of it. And that section I'm going to read has an outline that's what I showed you earlier that I've provided here. So that's the general point-by-point outline of what we're going to be doing as we look through this next passage. But seeing it in its entirety up front I think is helpful. So let me read. I'm going to read from verse 5 all the way to verse 20. And then we'll back up and look at the text that we have in view tonight. Again, here's Jesus beginning to prepare the twelve, knowing that they're going to have to fulfill a very important role in his absence. And it says, verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely you give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy... Give it your blessing of peace. If it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent 
as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. All right, well, this passage we just read in Matthew and a companion passage you'd find in Luke chapter 10 contains, I would argue, the most practical teaching Jesus offers in all the Gospels on the kingdom program. The kingdom program. Now, as we dive into this passage, I want to make sure we all understand what I mean when I say kingdom. Because that's a concept in the church that can often be confused. I've seen people who come at it with some very odd thinking. And it's not a strange or or difficult concept. It's just one that we have to look at carefully. And the kingdom concept uh, develops all across Scripture, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, through a series of four steps, or four stages, you could say, to the kingdom concept. Ultimately, if you look at the very last of those four, ultimately, the kingdom in the Bible refers to a future age, that is a future period of history on earth, which is a very different type of life than the one we know now on earth in this age. The Bible says that in the kingdom age to come, which begins at the second coming of our Lord and goes for a thousand years, that in that age to come, Jesus will rule physically here on earth. You know, we call it a second coming for a reason because it's just like the first coming in the sense that he physically travels down here and lives here. But in that second coming, he doesn't come the way he did the first time. Uh, which is a good thing for us, for believers. In the first case, he came as a suffering prophet. In the second case, he will come as a conquering king. And he comes to rule a kingdom. That's why he's king. And in that rule over this earth, over all the nations on the earth and all the people of the earth, he rules in perfect wisdom, in perfect grace, and a world, uh, as a result, experiences a glorious period. A period in which all of the things you had wished for in life are finally happening on this earth. No injustice. Nothing except proper, peaceful living. And if you really want to know the details of what this kingdom is going to be like, guess what you could do? You could come here on Tuesday nights. Because on Tuesdays, we're studying Ezekiel. And the preeminent book in the Bible explaining what life in the kingdom is going to be like is Ezekiel. And we are just about to start that section of the book. So there you go. Join us on Tuesday nights. But even before that literal place of the kingdom begins in that future day. The Bible speaks of earlier phases of the kingdom, three earlier phases of the kingdom. And it's easy to remember because they all begin with a P. This is my own invention. I'm very proud of this. Um, The kingdom concept begins in the scriptures way back in Genesis as a promise, as a promise that God gave to Abraham in the covenants and to Abraham's descendants. And in that covenant promise, among other things, God said that he would bring a seed or a Messiah, we now understand, a Messiah who would come to Israel in a future day, and when he came, he would set up a kingdom for Israel on earth. He promised that to Abraham. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham lived his life looking forward to that day, knowing that one day God would fulfill that promise. In fact, Abraham was such a man of faith, he knew that it would come only after he died. So he spent his whole life living, knowing he would not see the promise fulfilled until a resurrected life. That's the promise of the kingdom. And that continued for a time. The promise lived on for a while until the Messiah actually arrived as promised, which, of course, is the story that we're studying right now in Matthew. The coming of the promised Messiah, declaring the kingdom is at hand. At that point, the concept of kingdom in the Bible has changed. 
It is transitioned from a promise to a proposal. It's now ready to be realized. It's now on the table. It's an offer. Jesus says to his people, Israel, if you would receive me as your king, I will gladly give you the promised kingdom right here and now. But as we'll see when we get to chapter 12, I've mentioned this now time and again, that in chapter 12 we reach that sea change, that profound moment in which the offer of the gospel is formally rejected by Israel. And in their formal rejection, the die is cast. Jesus now withdraws the offer of the kingdom from that generation of Israel. Not from all future generations, mind you, but from that generation of Israel. There will not be a kingdom in their day set up as promised. And so at that moment, the proposal of the kingdom that Jesus is offering is withdrawn. And in its place, we reach the third step of this kingdom progression, as I'm explaining it. And the third step is a program. It went from a promise to a proposal, and now with the proposal withdrawn, the kingdom doesn't go away, but we move to a new phase called the program of the kingdom. And the program of the kingdom is Jesus' focus right now. He's training his disciples, his apostles, to accomplish the program of the kingdom. What is the program of the kingdom? The program of the kingdom is the recruiting of men and women from all over the world to become kingdom citizens now, in anticipation of the kingdom's arrival. You know, in in our earthly sense of how things are done, you cannot become a citizen of a particular country until you arrive in that country, and then you appeal for citizenship, you apply, you go through some process. That's an earthly way of doing things, and God has got a different plan for his kingdom. His kingdom is going to arrive only after all the citizens for that kingdom have already been established and are ready to walk in on day one. So that on day one of the kingdom, the entire population of the kingdom is ready to benefit and and enjoy it. So he simply reversed the steps. He is now, through the program of the kingdom, recruiting citizens to trade in their earthly passports for a heavenly passport, ready to enter the kingdom when it arrives. That's the program of the kingdom. And the program of the kingdom will continue until the day is right for God to bring that place of the kingdom, the physical place that we're waiting for. So it goes from promise to proposal, to program, ultimately to a place. Now, obviously, we sit at step number three because we're still waiting for the place to arrive. And that program begins here, now, in chapter 10, at least the preparation of it. So the kingdom consists of program work, and God is preparing a a group of men to lead a church to accomplish that program work. And as you can tell in what I read in that long passage, there's a long list of instructions here. You know, when you get the toy for your kids at Christmas and you have to read the instruction manual and it's written in a language that's sort of half your language and half something else, and you can't quite make sense of it, right? And you think, this is a lot of work, honey. We should have gotten this pre-assembled. That's what you might feel at first as you read this, because especially toward the end of it, it's not a lot of positive reinforcement. There's a lot of warnings, a lot of concerns. Now, some of the things he says to us in this list are very familiar. Go out, preach, you know, so on and so forth. But then there's some things that sound a little strange. Don't even take a walking staff. What's wrong with that? And these are the kinds of details we need to pour over if we're going to really understand what he's saying. Every one of them matters. And to make sense of it all, we break it down. So here's the outline. The first step of this process is know your objective. And that's verses 5 and 6. Then that'll move to what is our message? Verse 7. Well, with our message and our objective, what's our method then? What's our, our manner of working? And the method is the large section from 8 through 12. Having applied our method, we look for the result, 13 through 15. And in the course of this work, we need to carry ourselves in a certain mindset, certain attitude. Verse 16, 
And then finally, so that we don't start something we can't finish, he warns us about the cost. Verses 17 through 31. So that's our guide for how you and I, how the whole church in general will serve as ambassadors for Christ, how we fulfill the kingdom program that he's given to us, starting with what he gave the apostles. And as I said, we aren't apostles, but that doesn't mean... And by the way, you might not be even live uh, a call to live vocationally. I mean, you may not be called to live as a pastor or evangelist or a missionary. Okay, fine. Not all of us do the same thing. That doesn't mean we aren't all disciples. Absolutely you are. And it doesn't mean you aren't called to participate in the kingdom program. If you are a disciple, which means if you have faith in Christ, then by definition you are called to work in the kingdom program. It's just a matter of when, how, and to what degree. So let's begin with the first part of these in this outline. Let's start with the objective. And as simple as it may sound, hey, the objective, that's cool. Let's go save some souls. All right? Well, it's true to say it that way, but it's not enough to say it that way. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus tells his disciples that their objective is to recruit fellow Jews into becoming citizens of the kingdom. Now, for a Jew in Jesus' day, the notion that you would have to go out inviting other Jews to be part of the kingdom promised to Israel was a nonsensical request. That's a ridiculous statement. Because Jews had been taught that every Jew was assured entry into the kingdom simply by being born of Abraham. That was the conventional thinking of the day. And so for the same reason, they also believed there was no single Gentile ever coming into the kingdom. It was for Jews, Jews only. They had the promise. It was only for them. It was automatic. Why would you go out telling anyone about the kingdom? You know, if your mindset is like that, why would you ever go out and say anything about the kingdom? It's no coincidence then when you look at the history of Israel, they did not have a long-standing practice of evangelism. <laughs> you know, you didn't see a lot of Jews, you know, running around the world, you know, trying to convert. They couldn't care less what happened to Gentiles. They were all going to hell anyway. Remember I told you, I think at the very beginning of this study, when we started on Matthew, I mentioned at a point there that there was a, a folklorish story that was believed in Jesus' day that said that if a Jew somehow got confused in the afterlife and found themselves headed toward hell, Abraham, Father Abraham, was literally standing at the gates of hell waiting for any Jew in case they happened to come. And if they did, he turned them around and sent them to heaven. You know, I mean, for us, that's nonsense, right? But they actually believed that. They felt that certain about their future just because they're Jewish. Now, that false understanding came out of a long history of false teaching, because I'll tell you plainly, the Old Testament does not teach this. The Old Testament never taught Jews or, or Israel that their Jewishness was an automatic ticket into the kingdom. That's not taught. And similarly, by the way, the Bible does not teach that Samaritans and, and Gentiles are excluded from the kingdom. So don't think that they somehow found that in their text of Scripture and that's where they got that notion. Now, that's just how they had been taught by their leadership. But understand now what Jesus is facing as he begins to prepare these men. Jesus... Before he could teach these, these men how to reach the world, he had to teach them that they needed to reach the world. He had to teach them that God wanted to reach the world, which for us is, I guess, a, a foregone conclusion, but not so for them. They had to learn salvation is not just for the Jews. Moreover, it's not even guaranteed for the Jews. The kingdom was an opportunity for glory, but no one has an automatic ticket. Therefore, he has to give them an objective that is spelled out. Because as obvious as the objective is to us in this 21st century New Testament age that we live in, it was not obvious to a Jew. And here's the objective he gives them, as we read already. He says, the kingdom 
comes as a matter of faith, having pledged your faith in the Jewish king of the kingdom. That's not spelled out here. We know that's the gospel. But that's the objective he's setting forward to them. He's setting forth an objective that your kingdom program objective is you need to go out looking for the person who would place their faith in the king such that they then can receive the kingdom. And by faith, they are, as I said earlier, trading in one passport for the next, becoming citizens of heaven before the kingdom even arrives. Now look in detail at how he defines this, though, because there's some interesting qualities to what he said that are not necessarily what we would see today. For example, he defines the objective in verse 5 as focusing on the Jewish brethren exclusively. You notice that? He says, don't go to Gentiles, don't go to Samaritans, at least not for now. Let me explain that distinction. In the Bible, humanity is divided into three parts, generally. First, there's God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. They are the literal, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, period. That's who Israel is. It's not someone who imagines they like to be thinking they're Israel. It's not someone who has an affinity for Israel. It's not someone who learns Hebrew. It's people who physically, genetically descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Israel. Secondly, the Bible says, if you're not in that group, then by definition, you are a Gentile. And a Gentile is every other nation of people on earth except Jews. Now, there is a third group that the Bible recognizes as a convenience or as a function of history. They separate a group called Samaritans. Now, Samaritans are the people who lived geographically in what we think of today as sort of the middle of Israel, just north of Jerusalem, south of the Galilee, in an area by a town called Samaria, by Mount Gerizim. And Samaritans historically descended from Jews. But over centuries of time, it's a long history we don't have to go into, but over centuries of time, they intermarried with Gentiles. As a result, they're no longer bona fide Jews. Technically, they're just Gentiles now. But they never left their sense of Judaism behind. They continued to practice the law in their own way. They set up a temple of their own. They put uh, you know, sacrifices going on. They, they kind of played Jew. But to them, they thought it was legitimate. In fact, they thought they were the only real Jews, and the real Jews were the fake ones. Okay? So, at times in the Bible, that group gets called out separately because Jews themselves saw that group as a separate group. They didn't like them, but they saw them as distinct because of their history. In fact, did you know today there's only one place in Israel where there's still a temple operating and doing sacrifices uh, at Passover every year? Do you know where that is? On Mount Gerizim. The small surviving population of Samaritans on earth are still on the top of Mount Gerizim. They still have a temple and they still do sacrifices on Passover. They're the only ones in Israel doing it, but they're up there doing it. All right, that's why you see this distinction. More importantly, here's the point. Why does Jesus tell his disciples, I only want you evangelizing the Jewish people at this point? Well, there's two reasons. First, the kingdom was promised to Israel. That is, It was through the covenants God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the opportunity for a kingdom even comes about. And therefore, it's only through the Jewish people that the promise of a kingdom can be fulfilled. You hear that? God's covenants were given to a certain group of people. There is no covenant in the Bible between God and a Gentile. There is no covenant in the Bible between God and a Gentile. There are covenants that were given to all mankind prior to the existence of a Jew-Gentile distinction, prior to Abraham, yes, like Noah, for example. But because there were no Jews then, there were no Gentiles either. It was just mankind. Once Jews existed, there's no covenant given by God to any Gentile at that point. Now you're looking at me and you're thinking, well, I'm in the new covenant. Yes, and Paul explains in, in Romans 11 that we're grafted into, Gentiles are added to what God is doing to the Jewish people. 
so that he can bless all nations. doesn't change the fact that the covenant, the root that we're grafted into, is the covenants given to Israel. So God is working through the Jewish people. And therefore, when it's time for him to fulfill his promise to bring a kingdom that he promised to the Jewish people, God goes to his own people first. And the Jews would have the opportunity to receive what God had promised them. But the Lord did say to Abraham when he made these promises that through Abraham he would bless all nations with this promised kingdom. You remember in Genesis 12, 3, when he spoke to Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. And then he said, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now you notice he said it would be in you that I will bless them. He didn't say besides you I will bless them. He said in you I will bless them, which means that God selected Abraham and then he worked through Abraham's family to bring a plan of redemption to fruition for everyone's sake. So through what God did in Abraham's life, in his family line, every other nation will have an opportunity to be blessed by that same promise. And so God has put Israel in a place of prominence in his plan and in the future. Not to the exclusion of us, but that doesn't deny their prominent place. And because of their prominence, we acknowledge that God is going to always work through them to get to others. You may notice that uh, in, in the book of Revelation, this is getting a little deep, but in the book of Revelation during a time to come called tribulation, there'll be a moment on the earth when there's no believers here. All the ones that had been here have been removed. And God begins to restart the program of evangelism. He's not done yet. He's got more he's going to save. Where does he go first when he begins that next step of evangelism? Well, Revelation says he begins with 144,000 Jewish men. Why Jewish? Because salvation is of the Jews. It starts with the Jewish people and goes to the rest of the world. And he does it every single time that way. So by its very nature, the program of the kingdom puts Israel in the foreground, at least initially, until such time as they are no longer interested and then the Gentiles are given opportunity. Paul says it this way in Romans 9.3. He says, I wish that I myself were accursed, put to hell, he says, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. He says, Whose are the fathers? From whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever? And amen. All right, so the first answer to the question is, why does he send them to the Jew first? Because that's how God has planned the program of the kingdom, to the Jew first. But then Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And then he adds, and also to the Greek, right? So the second reason Jesus is sending the apostles to Israel alone is simply a matter of timing. At this point in history, chapter 10 of Matthew, Israel has not yet made their decision to reject Jesus. That's coming in chapter 12. So until that moment, until Jesus is ultimately rejected, theoretically, Israel still has the opportunity to receive the kingdom. Now, if you want to blow your mind for a moment, consider this. Theoretically, had Israel embraced Jesus as Messiah when he made the proposal, the kingdom would have started right then. He would have fulfilled it. This is a legitimate, sincere offer. This isn't some kind of duped thing where he's not really going to give it to them. He just wants to say that he tried. No, it's a legitimate offer. The kingdom of God is at hand. Receive me. And if they had, what else would have been true? Well, the present age would have ended then. And had the present age ended then, the kingdom age would have begun. But here's the kicker. If that had happened, 
you and me and every other Gentile in the church that's come since then, we're left out of luck. We're not included in that plan, right? And that's obviously not what God had in store. So there would be a rejection, and that rejection would lead to better things, and ultimately, it also leads to Israel's uh, salvation in a day to come. But until they made that rejection known, until chapter 12 comes, it's still a legitimate offer, and they still have every opportunity to receive it. And so for now, at least, the offer that Jesus tells the disciples to go out with is an offer for Israel alone. They're kind of right of first refusal, if you will, on the kingdom. And I would add this. If we imagine for a moment that these guys had disobeyed Jesus, we assume they're just too generous. They can't stand the thought of leaving out a Gentile. Let me just tell you, that's not how Jews would have thought. But let's just assume for a minute they had that thought. I'm telling you that it wouldn't have worked. I'm telling you that the offer would have never fallen on anything but deaf ears. That God in His Spirit was not working to move the hearts of Gentiles yet in His timing. So they had no offer that they could make to a Gentile that would have been credible or receivable. They had only one offer that they were given to make, which is to, he says, Israel. And until the Spirit of God is ready to move to the next step, it's not going to happen anyway. All right. The next thing to notice in this offer, this objective rather, is the way Jesus refers to those that the apostles are going to seek. And I'm here to tell you tonight, I think this will probably be the biggest gotcha revelation you're going to have tonight. And I hope it is because it's one that changes your whole outlook on evangelism once you understand it. Look at the objective and how he defines who they're seeking. He says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. The lost sheep of Israel. Now, earlier at the end of chapter 9, you remember we talked about shepherding because it came up at that point, about how shepherding is a great picture of pastoral ministry. And we remember Matthew said that, he, that Jesus looked upon the people of Israel at about this time after ministering to them for a while, and he noticed that they were like troubled sheep without a shepherd. Remember that? And now you hear Jesus saying, He wants his apostles to go out and reach the lost sheep of Israel. And this gives us another opportunity to extend our understanding of that metaphor just a little step further. Now, you probably know that in the Bible, sheep are a common metaphor for the children of God, right? That's not surprising anyone here, right? You would be sheep, in other words, the children of God, believers, we might say. So both the Old Testament saints in Israel and the New Testament believers in the church are called sheep, Because we are the flock, the Jesus shepherds, and so on, right? But it's by faith in Christ that you become a sheep. I lost anybody. All right? Let me give you an example just to make sure you understand that this is the biblical mindset. Matthew 25, which obviously we'll get to probably in about three weeks or so. um, Jesus teaches, anybody who's new here doesn't realize that's a joke. um, Jesus teaches in that chapter about what will transpire immediately after his second coming. And he says this concerning that moment. He says in Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them, the nations, from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Right? We've heard this, some of you. And then he says, he will put the sheep on his right. Now, the directions are important here. Keep this in mind. He says, I'm going to put the sheep on the right, my right. And he says, I'm going to put the goats on the left. And then he says, the king will say to those on his right, who's over here? Sheep. Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. Now we're moving from a program to a place. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then a few verses later he says, 
And then he will also say to those on his left, now we know we're talking about the other group, right? The goats. He says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Pretty stark difference there, right? Between the two. No doubt which is which, right? Sheep equals believers. Goats equal unbelievers. And that's a consistent picture in Scripture. There's nothing unique about this. I'm just showing you it here because it's very clear. So you have sheep and you have goats. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because when you look at the objective that we just saw in chapter 10, you find the metaphor used in a very odd way. Jesus said, go look for the lost sheep of Israel. And we know the word lost refers to unsaved. Those who have not yet believed or may never believe in the gospel and receive the kingdom. But when the Bible uses metaphoric language to describe the lost, which animal does it use? The goat, not the sheep. So we have almost what appears to be an oxymoronic phrase here, lost sheep, right? Sheep are God's children, goats are the lost, but now we've got lost sheep. So why didn't Jesus tell these guys, go find the lost goats of Israel and turn them into sheep? Why wouldn't that have been what he said? Wouldn't that be a more consistent use of the biblical metaphor? The answer is no, it would not have been. Because the Bible never views the objective of the kingdom program as turning goats into sheep. Your objective is never to turn a goat into a sheep because you couldn't do it if you tried. It's impossible to turn a goat into a sheep. Not just metaphorically or literally. I mean, it's also true in spiritual terms. Our objective is to find lost sheep. And the lost sheep, in this case the lost sheep of Israel, because as I said, they're starting there. But you can say the same thing about Gentiles. It doesn't turn on whether you're saying Gentile or or Jew in this case. It's just sheep who are lost. Jesus is the one who saves. Not you, not me. Jesus, through his spirit, through his word, is the one who saves. The Bible says Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, of our salvation. The author of it and the perfecter of it, that is, he authors our salvation through faith and he brings our salvation to perfection in the day we are resurrected. None of us, none of us, church, have the power to bring faith to anyone. All right? Our best arguments in regard to faith are inadequate. No one here is a good enough orator. No one in here has enough power in their persuasive speech. No one here has all the answers. No one here has the power to do what the Bible says only happens by the Spirit of God. By faith being made possible, by being born again by the Spirit of God. And when Jesus uses the the picture of birth in John 3 to describe how salvation comes when he was talking to Nicodemus and he said, you must be born again. We use that phrase now very easily because it's rolling off our tongue all the time, right? Think about it, though, as if you just heard it for the first time, kind of like Nicodemus did back in chapter 3 of John. And notice how Jesus has carefully chosen a specific kind of picture to represent salvation. He's taken the picture of physical birth and he's borrowing from it to make an example of how spiritual birth or spiritual, uh, let's, let's say salvation generally, how salvation comes to pass. And if you make the comparison for just a moment, you get a lot of insight And it leads you to an understanding of why he said, look for lost sheep, not lost goats. All right? He's saying here that the picture of birth, that is of being born physically, is a helpful way to understand how you came to faith spiritually. Physically speaking, let's start with the analogy. Physically speaking, the union of a man and a woman results in a new human being coming into existence. 
Wow, hawala, right? But if you think about that for just a moment, that process, for the sake of tender ears, we won't discuss the process, but if you think about the process for a minute, how much credit can parents really take for bringing you know, life into existence? I made the mistake one time of taking credit for my own children's coming into existence. My wife quickly corrected me that I had virtually nothing to do with the whole process. But even if you give yourself some credit, right? You know, my own dad, my dad, God love him, my dad couldn't change a light bulb without an instruction manual, right? I don't think he gets much credit from me standing here in that regard, does he? I mean, as much as I love him, it does, that's not how it works. Here's my point, and it should be obvious. Even though you see human life coming into existence through a process that is filled with all these human patterns of behavior, even though you can see the humanity of it taking place, we still know that there is a real work being done in secret behind the scenes that makes the whole thing happen. Right? God forms the person in the womb. He says that in Psalms. God gives us the breath of life. He says that in Genesis as well as in Psalms. But what God does is use human procreation as the means by which he brings people into existence. But look, friends, crediting your parents for bringing you into life is like crediting Shakespeare's quill for writing Macbeth. Right? By itself, it's worthless. Right? It took Shakespeare to pick it up in order for anything good to happen. So, Jesus is comparing faith, coming to salvation, to being born physically in this sense. He says, being born again, and you notice he uses the term again, because spiritual birth takes place after our physical birth. We're born first, he says to Nicodemus, by water, which is a way of referring to the bodily fluids that accompany the birth process. You're born birth through a water process, if you will, and then you're born a second time, he says, through a spiritual process. One first than the other if God appoints. And just like physical birth, being born again spiritually is a process that is done by God through a human process, a a series of human steps. In the case of physical birth, uh, being born means that certain human beings took certain actions to get you into the womb and out. And similarly, in the case of spiritual birth, there is Someone who tells you about the gospel, somebody wrote a book that you read, somebody said something on a stage that you heard, whatever the physical process was, is whatever it was. But the bigger question is, why did you agree? You ever wondered about that, by the way? You know, that guy or gal that listens to the gospel and believes, but that's like the 50th time they've heard it? Ask yourself this, why didn't they believe it the other 49 times? The fact never changed, the details never changed, the story never changed, it never got any better. Nothing about the story was any different the 50th time. Why now is it suddenly convincing? That's the difference between us doing something and God doing something. Which is what happens when you find a lost sheep. That's how salvation works. That's how the entire kingdom program works. It depends on this understanding, friends. It depends on understanding that God does the work of salvation. We are just batting cleanup. We're just bringing them home. But we didn't put them on the base, so to speak. You may remember when Jesus told his disciples this in Mark 10, 25. He says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Remember that? And then the disciples respond. They said to him, Well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, Well, with people it is impossible. Not with God. For all things are possible with God. I love that statement because what Jesus did is in, in seeing how rich people responded to his offer of the gospel, he realized these people have so little incentive to receive the gospel. I mean, they, they have their security and their pleasure in this world, and that makes the kingdom offer seem unattractive by comparison. 
That doesn't seem like a very attractive offer. I've got all this stuff already. I don't need your thing. And so Jesus uses the hyperbola of this camel and a needle thing to simply say, rich people cannot find their own way into the kingdom. Can't be done. And to which the disciples, they recognize, well, if that's true, how can anyone be saved? You want a little insight into your own heart? You may not think you're rich, but you qualify under these terms. Because what the disciples realized is, if simply loving riches is enough to keep someone out of heaven, who could get in? Because you don't have to have riches to love them. And what Jesus says in response to that is, everything you need to know about how the gospel works. He says, you're right, you know what, you're absolutely right. If getting into heaven depended on your own ability, it's hopeless. But praise the Lord, it doesn't work that way. What's impossible for us is possible with God. That's how every single soul gets into heaven, whether rich or poor. God does the impossible work of preparing a heart to receive a foolish message, Paul calls it, so that when that message comes on a certain day that God has appointed, that lost sheep will gladly receive it, be born again by the Spirit, and they go from lost sheep to found sheep. They don't go from goat to sheep. The evangelist who delivers that message did not turn a goat into a sheep. What that he or she did is find a lost sheep that God had prepared to be found. And understanding that to be your objective will transform your attitude about seeking the lost. Transform it, friends. Absolutely changes everything you do, changes why you do it, when you do it, how you do it. Because if you begin your work in evangelism thinking you are responsible for turning goats into sheep, you will be overwhelmed at the prospect of it. If you even think about it at all. Because you're going to immediately start to think things like, I don't have the skill to do that. I don't have the knowledge to do that. I don't know how to answer all the questions. I can't refute all the arguments. I mean, my goodness, I don't even know where to begin. And then you start to worry, well, gee, if I mess this up, what will happen to that person? Right? They get maybe one shot, and I'm the guy that God sends, and I don't know how to do it. I mess it up, and all of a sudden they don't believe, and now they're in hell because of me? You know, we laugh at that. My wife tells me stories of going to church when she was young, and that's exactly how it was preached to her. Think about the guilt trip that leaves you with, right? Listen to what Paul says about his objective as an evangelist. You want to hear how Paul thought about this? This is what Paul said. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he says to that church, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined... I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, he says. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There's your example of of finding lost sheep. Paul says, I intentionally did not share the gospel with you using a bunch of persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't try to talk you into it. And he says, if I were trying to convince goats to turn their horns in and get sheep's wool, it would have been a worthless enterprise anyway, because people might have agreed with me mentally. But what he's saying is, your faith would have rested on my words of wisdom, not on power and authority from God, which is to say you wouldn't really have been saved anyway. Now, there are people out there who, unfortunately, have been persuaded into a lifestyle or into some kind of cultural affinity for the church, and they've never had the gospel hit them squarely in the heart because God's not been involved in it for their sake yet. Paul says, I came in weakness and fear and trembling. Can you get an amen to that? Anybody feel like that when you go out and evangelize? Join the club. The Apostle Paul's right there with you. And he says he did this. He embraced this objective because he did not want their faith to rest on anything except God and the power of God. If someone says they believe merely because you convinced them, 
or argue them into believing, friends, let me propose to you that that's not faith. may not be faith. Not unless it's accompanied by the power of God. Unless a person is born again by the Spirit, they are not God's. And unless a person is made to be a sheep by God, they're not a sheep. Right? So my favorite picture of this, and I'll end on this for you, my favorite picture of this idea of our objective. Our objective is finding lost sheep, not turning goats into sheep. How does this really play out in a practical sense? Here's my, my classic example of an Easter egg hunt. Some of you have heard it, I know. I want you to think of an Easter egg hunt where a father sends his kids into the garden to do Easter egg hunting. And those eggs, in my analogy, are like the lost sheep. That is to say, our Father in Heaven has told us, go out into the world and seek the lost. And He said it because He knows they're out there, and He knows they're out there because He's the one who put them out there. Which is to say, when your dad sends you out to go look for Easter egg hunts, I mean, unless he's the cruelest man on earth, he's put a few out there. (laughs) Actually, that would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Just Too bad my children are grown. And the child, from their point of view, they go out hunting. Now, come on, they don't think they're producing the eggs by mere searching for them, right? That's not, they understand they've been placed for them. The eggs are there waiting. So the, kid, the kids go out with an excitement and an eagerness about it because they know they're there. And they're just trying to find them. And they look eagerly. And if you look behind one corner and you don't find it, you're not disappointed necessarily. You just say, well, one less place to look. Let's go to the next corner, right? They're going to be found sooner or later. And I think one of the reasons kids run so fast, I know the the reason they run so fast, because if they don't find them, somebody else is going to find them, right? Imagine how your efforts at evangelism would change if you took a lost sheep mentality with this Easter egg kind of analogy in the back of your mind, and you said to yourself, I've got to talk to more people today because I want to get them before Steve does. And you say, well, why does that matter? Because your eternal rewards are based on the quality of your service to Christ. There is something in this for us if we serve Christ well. So, in the same sense of that analogy, there are people outside this room, and maybe even inside this room, who have had their hearts prepared by God to receive the gospel. They are, in that sense, lost sheep. And the only thing standing between them and the kingdom is the day appointed for someone to tell them about the kingdom. Wouldn't it be great to be that person? To be the one to tell them? That's nothing stopping you. The only thing that's been stopping us is this thought that we had to have the whole argument laid out and we had to have some kind of persuasive speech and maybe a little luck and then maybe we'd see a result. May I suggest to you it's not happening because we're not doing it in the spirit of the objective that Christ gave us. You do not have to be talented in this search process. You just have to be persistent. As I like to say, serving God in the kingdom program is not a matter of ability. It's a matter of availability. That is, making yourself available. When you understand this, when you embrace this concept of evangelism that is seeking lost sheep, you will get a whole lot more excited about doing it. And if you tell me personally that I have to turn goats into sheep, I'm discouraged and I don't go do it. But you tell me I just have to find the ones God's already prepared and I suddenly tell you, I got this. Finding stuff, that's not so bad. And it's not because I think I'm competent at that. I, I, I lose more stuff than I typically find. But I realize at that point it doesn't depend on me. Will you join the Father in the work that He's doing around you? And just seek a few lost sheep along the way in your current day or week? Will you make yourself available for that hunt? And look, friends, if the person you ask says no, that's one less corner to look behind, at least for now. Just go to the next. All right, that's the objective Christ gave the church for the program. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have condescended to let us be a part of something so eternally important as seeking lost sheep.
How much must you love us, Father, to design a program that depends on us participating with you in that way? Not, not that you can't save without us, Father, but that you have chosen to work through us. What an amazing display of your love for your children. But for the same reason, Father, what a shame it is when we don't take up that offer. And we know that, Father, we've heard it in your word tonight, and we want to take a different approach going forward. We want our objective to be yours. So, Father, help us in the days and weeks to come to think about those people that pass our way every day as potential lost sheep, and let us have a courage to just open our mouths and say something kind and simple and direct, and we'll leave the rest to you. And, Father, in your grace and mercy, let us see some success along the way so that we would be encouraged to continue. We ask these things, Father, so that in the end, the kingdom is filled with men and women who glorify your name for your mercy and for your grace. And perhaps a few, Father, we have had a moment's opportunity to participate in in bringing them in. That's our request, Father. Thank you for a church that preaches your word and cares to make these things known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.